Good evening and welcome to our evening service. We welcome those who are joining us on Zoom as well. Good to have you with us. Been a, a good day. Lord bless us as we gather together around his word. Again, we welcome Jacob Taggett with us this evening. Uh, some of you were here this morning, enjoyed the message he gave, and we ask him to come now with the reading of the scripture and uh, to lead us in prayer. Jacob, if you would, please. Good evening. The last time I was here, not this past morning, but before that, I preached on Psalm 51. This time I'm preaching on Psalm 130. You'll notice that they're both penitential psalms in which the psalmist expresses some degree of confession over their sins, but you'll notice, I hope, with this one, a lot more hope, a lot more confidence, a much lighter tone. And so I find that when the evenings are getting a little darker, it's sometimes they have a little more hope. So Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us pray. O glorious God, Heavenly Father, we come to you. And though it is dark outside, we have a light within us. We have a hope in us. Our faith is an expectant faith. We know that you will come. Jesus Christ will come. All of the promises shall be fulfilled that you have promised. All of our promises, your promises and the yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you, that you have given us. We thank you that you shall redeem Israel from all of its iniquities. Lord, be with us tonight. I pray that your spirit would be working, that if anyone is downcast, if anyone is... <coughs> discouraged, Lord, that your spirit would be a comfort to them, as your word says it will be. Lord, tonight I pray that we would just be encouraged and comforted with the hope that we have in you. That there will be a day when Christ comes again and there will be no more fears, no more tears. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. Amen. As I said before, I don't know about you, but I can find it pretty discouraging for it to be 
six o'clock and already pitch black outside. Um, so easy for the long nights of winter to weigh on us, and winter's barely started, right? And our days are getting shorter and shorter while the darkness and the nighttime get longer. And this can have a serious effect on someone's mental health, their spiritual health, their whole outlook on life. But this psalm, as I said, it is full of hope. It reminds us that God's people, as God's people, we do not need to be caught up in this world of despair, this world of darkness. We hear of wars and death and hunger and famine and droughts and earthquakes and so on and so forth. Tragedies. The loss of life is astounding. The precious blood within us is spilled not just by these natural disasters, but it's also spilled by fellow image bearers. Greed, lust, power, drugs. I mean, it's even easy to, de to get depressed about our own spiritual state. How, how's it going with our fight against sin in our lives? When you're young or a newborn Christian, you see certain sins in your life and think, I'll be done with that one in a week. You'll have dealt with that sin and you can move on to the next one and so on and so forth and then you're perfect, right? You'll be holy in no time. There, that's lying done with. What's next? Well, it's probably pride. That's <laughs> it's a beautiful thing when God saves a man or a woman out of a completely different lifestyle. Their behavior does a 180, born again. It's a new person and extreme sins they've dealt with forever are shed from them, like a snakeskin. They've never felt, they never feel any compulsion to return to him, to those sins. In fact, they're disgusted by them. But that's not always the case for every sin, is it? But for the Christian, we should never be too discomforted by the way of this world. We are in this world, but we are not of it. We possess a heavenly citizenship. Even as we live out our mortal days on this earth, this world is perishing. Our bodies are perishing. But we have an inheritance ahead of us that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And verse 11, same Psalm, verse 30, chapter, Psalm 30, Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Let us remember that in his presence there is fullness of joy. 
At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In Christ all the sufferings of this world are turned into a light momentary affliction. And all of this is meant to prepare us for an eternal glory that awaits us. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? As we read the psalm, may this hope before us never leave our minds. Psalm 130. Let me break down the the structure so you can see more clearly why this psalm is so full of hope and promise. Verses 1 and 2. And 3 and 4 are all parts of the psalmist's prayer. So for verses 1 and 2 are just called the, the invocation. He's addressing God. Verses 3 and 4, it's the, the content of the actual prayer. But verses 5 and 6, it is an expectant hope. Verses 7 and 8, this, this hope that fills the psalmist, is in contagious and overflowing assurance that he would that he longs for all of Israel to share with him. So those are the four categories, categories, and I'll try and break them down, but we'll go through them slowly. So, okay, the, the invocation, verses one and two. Again, what do I mean by that? The psalmist is making an initial address to God in his prayer begging God that the Lord would listen to his pleas for mercy. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Although he is in the depths, he is desperately calling out to the only one who can save him. Now the psalmist is using the metaphor of the depths, this is probably in regard to the sea. In, in the Psalms, it's most often referring to the sea. Though elsewhere you see it referring to the depths of the earth. But it's a metaphor of the depths as a means of expressing how much trouble or turmoil they are really in. Whether it's physical or spiritual danger or mental depression Yet this author trusts that God can still help even in such a place. This is our God after all. Remember remember Psalm 139? Where shall I go from thy spirit? Or where shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, behold, thou art there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. What I find so interesting about the psalm is that the psalmist is never delivered. It doesn't doesn't actually say that the psalmist is delivered from his plight, in this psalm at least. It's not like the narratives where they cry out to God and he delivers them in some miraculous way. As far as we can tell throughout the whole of this psalm, the narrator is still in the depths. He's crying out from out from from out of the depths. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. And yet there's still a marked difference in how the psalmist ends this psalm compared to how it begins. 
He starts crying out from the depths, but ends with sure confidence that God shall redeem Israel from all iniquities. It is a bold faith. It is concentration on things like forgiveness, mercy, and redemption from iniquities that makes it more than likely that the psalmist here was in these depths, quote-unquote, not so much as in a physical sense of danger, but rather his state of sorrow or of despondency reflected godly sorrow or true guilt over some sin of his. This leads us to the second half of his prayer. Verses 3 and 4, and we'll probably spend the majority of the evening tonight looking at these two verses. In the first two verses, he invokes God to hear him. He calls upon the Lord to listen to him. But it's not just a call to listen. It's a call for action. It's a cry for help. In the second half, in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist assumes God has answered his prayer. He assumes God is listening to him, so he addresses him directly. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Verse 4, but there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. There are three elements in these two verses that I want to tease out that one could really spend a whole sermon on, but I'll try and refrain from doing that. Number one, iniquity. Number two, forgiveness. And number three, fear. Iniquity, forgiveness, and fear. First off, iniquity. I suggested earlier that iniquity is the cause of this person's plight. That seems likely. The reason they are in the depths, as I understand it, is because of their sin. Indeed, depths might actually be a reference to their sin. The psalmist is in the depths of their sin, and that is why they are not appealing to God to deliver them or rescue them or to protect them, although those are appropriate metaphors of how God saves us from our sin too. But rather, he is making his appeal to the Lord, who has forgiveness with him. In verse 4. Verse 7 the Lord who has mercy and whose redemption is plenteous. The Lord who, verse 8, shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the Lord the psalmist cries out to in his distress. And truly our iniquities should cause us distress. This isn't a particularly unique thought, but sin is serious. When we live in a world full of it, we can... Maybe water it down in our minds. Sin doesn't always seem so harmful as the Bible claims it to be. But we have to make sure that our view of sin is in line with the Scripture's portrayal of it. How seriously the Lord takes sin and iniquity, transgressions, and wrongs. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, O Lord, who should stand? The fact is the wage of sin is death. And this verse speaks to the pervasiveness of sin in the human race. If God marked iniquity in us, would there be any righteous man standing? Every one of us has committed evil against our God, so that not only should we not be standing, but we should also have been struck dead. That is the wage of sin. 
The wage of sin is death. The day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Just as Adam and Eve did not die immediately, though their death Though their death was assured from that moment on, so also God has given us His grace on earth so that normally, when we sin, we do not immediately bear the punishment of death for such a crime. Rather, Romans 2, verse 4, says that by the riches of His goodness and the forbearance and long-suffering The goodness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. We have been given time to repent, to turn away from our sins and embrace God. With Him there is forgiveness. How? Let's talk about this forgiveness for a second. There is forgiveness with thee. Verse 4, Psalm 130. I can't cover all of it, but in the Old Testament, going back to the garden, Adam and Eve did not die immediately, but there was still death. To cover their shame at their nakedness, God prepares for them coats of skins, and many see this as the first death. In one sense, a type of sacrifice as the animals died so that God would provide humans covering for their nakedness, for their shame, for their sins. Later on in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and also in Numbers, we see, among other things, sacrificing animals, death, becomes tied up with the purification and cleansing rituals. A sin offering is initiated to remove guilt. The Passover is celebrated yearly to recall God's deliverance of the Jews from Egypt, and the Day of Atonement is instituted, where the Israelites afflict themselves in order to make atonement before God. So we have high priests and sacrifices and affliction and purification and cleansing rites in order that God would could dwell with his people. It's a holy God. That God could dwell with his people of unclean lips in the land that he was promising them. All of that it took all of this, however, only becomes the shadow of what was to come. I'm sure you're all familiar with this through the Sunday school teachings in, he- in Hebrews. But what does it say in chapter 9 and 10 there in Hebrews? These high priests came every year to atone for the people, but it was an imperfect atonement. For he also had to offer that blood. The high priest also had to offer that blood sacrifice for himself as well as as well as the errors of the people, year by year, year by year. These things stood for a time, imposed on them, and I'm quoting, until the time of Reformation. But Christ came as the high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. He obtained eternal redemption for us by entering the holy place by his own blood. Hebrews 9, verses 13 to 14. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, death of Christ, was needed to purify us, to enact the new covenant, and to bring about the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, verse 22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. But it was not the blood of bulls or goats that would ultimately bring this remission of sins. It was the blood of Christ who came and died by the will of God. Hebrews 10, verse 14, For by one offering, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This is the new covenant in which we stand. Enacted by the blood of Christ, verse, verses 16 and 18, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember them, I, will I remember no more. Quoting Jeremiah 31. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. No more offering for sin. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God while his enemies are becoming his footstools. If you are in Christ, if your trust is in, is in him as your high priest, your savior, your Lord, your king, God is not marking your iniquities, as it says here. There is forgiveness with God. He is a Lord of mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, or plentiful redemption. How then are we to respond to such mercy, such grace, such a divine plan of redemption? At first it may seem strange, but verse 4 It indicates that we're supposed to respond with fear. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Knowing the grace of the Lord should give us a proper fear of the Lord. But what does that mean? This was actually the verse... This verse struck me because it's such an odd saying, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to preach it tonight. Just struck by the oddity of how, how there is forgiveness in order that, or so that, God might be feared. I mean, I'd also love the psalm because of its references, unique references to the plenteous or plentiful redemption in verse 7. Um, and if you know your history, you might know that John Newton, the author of uh, Amazing Grace, he, he called his autobiography Out of the Depths in a reference to this psalm. Um, because God delivered him from his life of depravity, his, his sinful life, the depths of sin, as a sailor on slave ships. And God quite literally saved him from the depths of the sea when he survived a shipwreck, miraculously. Uh, it's a wonderful account. I really would encourage everyone to read it. But again, it was a depiction of the fear of God and how that relates to mercy. 
that I found so fascinating. In, in order to understand this biblical concept, we need to remove from our minds the human worldly notion that fear is only ever a negative emotion. You can't escape this when you're reading the scriptures. Um, and I'm not saying that such a negative fear does not exist biblically. It does, specifically for those who are outside of Christ. First John 4.18, for example, says that fear hath torment. That is to say, fear has to do with punishment. But as Christians in the love of God, we know that we do not need to fear, for there is no fear, and I'm quoting, but perfect love casts out fear. So there is a sense in which Christians do not have fear, but there is another sense that I'm sure you're familiar with, whereby Christians and all mankind must recover a sense of the fear of the Lord. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see that in the Proverbs as well, chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Job 28, verse 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. If you want to be wise, you must fear the Lord. But what does that mean? What is the connection there? I'm not really, not sure I really understood this until someone gave me the analogy of being in the presence of, of an immense storm, something like a hurricane. But worse than that, there's booms of thunder, cracks of lightning. It's terrifying. God has all of that power and more. And oftentimes when God shows up on earth in a more bodily experience, he is accompanied by fire, thunder, storms, lightning. And I think we sometimes lose that fear of God, that understanding of his overwhelming power, presence, and authority. Don't get me wrong here. God is love. And there's a song about a guy who who leaves the Roman Catholic Church because a nun tells him that fear was the heart of love. So he never went back. One of the most common criticisms of Christianity that I've heard is that it's a religion of fear. People just become Christians because they're afraid of hell. Or death. That's a common one when atheists or agnostics are trying to reconcile or understand why are religion so ubiquitous? Why have every culture and race and humanity, why have they all had a sense of God, a sense of the transcendent? They, they try and leave it up to that religion, that Christianity was just an invention because humans couldn't cope with the thought of death or the loss of loved ones. This is a tragedy. This is a distortion of the truth, a rejection of the truth. To the first part, fear in Christianity 
is the natural product of a reality that sinful humanity is in rebellion against its maker. And that, and that maker is awesome and powerful and almighty. And humans are not. It's like an ant shaking its fist at an elephant. Remember Job, the, the man who argued with God. God came down, answering Job out of the whirlwind, and all Job could say afterwards, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yeah, twice, but I will proceed no further. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What about Isaiah? Isaiah 6, verses 4 and 5. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Recently, um, in England, the, the Queen recently passed, right? And uh, oftentimes when the monarchy comes up in the news again, people start asking, why is there a monarchy? Especially in Canada, we, why do we have any ties to the monarchy, right? And I, I can't say that I have the answer, but I will say that as this world continues to lose its understanding of what a king really is, what authority is, and what respect for authority looks like, it's going to continue to twist how God's Creation ought to respond to its creator. Secondly, concerning the accusation where Christianity was concocted to, to soothe the minds of those afraid of death. Well, for one, it is true that Christianity gives us hope in death. Philippians 1 Verse 21, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, right? When we depart, we shall be with Christ in a much fuller sense than what we experience here on earth. Amen. We do look forward to that, and it's not just empty promises either. They give us peace on earth when we think about death or our loved ones dying. Yes, it is comforting to us, but our greatest comfort is to be with Christ in the presence of God. That is eternal life. But this correlation between comfort and death and the creation of religion to comfort our fears is it's too reductionistic. It's too small. It's too little. It's of what the true reality is. It is a lie. Read the scriptures with an honest, faithful prayer that God would reveal his truth to you. Knock on the door. And you'll see that the scriptures aren't some fear-driven conspiracy. It's the word of God 
God-breathed, divinely inspired. It's a book of truth, a book that points us to Christ, and it tells, it reveals who we are. It reveals God on every page. That is what, this is what some of us have collecting dust on our shelves at home. We have to make sure that we are treating it as the gift that it really is. <clears throat> I got a little sidetracked there, but coming back to the text, Psalm 130, verse 4, taking all of this in together, this understanding of the fear of God as a sort of worshipful reverence of God, which takes into account His majesty and His might, His power and His glory, compared to our frail frames and proneness to wander into sin. Keeping this in mind, how then do we understand the phrase, but there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared? I think the NIV over-translates it when it says, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Yet at the same time, I think it's pretty much hitting the nail on the head. It's God forgives us so that we might fear him. God forgives us so that we would go forth and sin no more. As we understand that forgiveness is only in him, we understand that he only becomes our only hope. We understand that he becomes our only hope if we are in our sins. God is the only God is your only hope of salvation. He is also the single highest authority in your life. And when Christ comes again, it is God who shall judge the living and the dead. So let us fear him. Let us sin no more and worship him properly. Let's move on to finish up this psalm. When breaking this psalm down, I referred to verses 5 and 6 as the psalmist's expectant hope. Now, this is meant to be opposed to that sort of hope which is against all odds. It's not a desperate kind of hope that we share, brothers and sisters. No, this is an expectant hope. It is a faithful hope. The morning will come. Let's read the text again, verse 5 and 6. <clears throat> I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. The night may be here for now, but morning is coming soon. You may be in the depths right now, whether that's spiritual or mental depression, general discouragement, a prolonged fight with a certain sin in your life. You may feel the discipline of the Lord weighing upon you. Remember that that is a reminder of God's love for you. But be sure of this. If you're hoping in Him, if you're hoping in the promises of the Word, verse 5, and in His Word do I hope, He shall not fail you. As much as you understand His promises. Now I know that there are some burdens that we as individuals may have to bear until the day that we die. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 that he received a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass him. And Paul pleaded with the Lord three times that it should leave him. 
But what did the Lord tell him? What can we all say in every situation? My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Brothers and sisters, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 20, also tells us that all of the promises of God, I, spoke, I, told, I said this earlier, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. For Christ is the true offspring of Abraham, and in him we become children of Abraham as well. God covenanted with Abraham, and we, he has covenanted with us a new covenant. And if we are the sons of Abraham, God's promise to Israel that we can also take a hold of. In Christ, his promise that he shall make us into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is what he has assured us in Christ. Thus the Lord shall be our God forevermore and we shall be his people. It's another promise. And just as God promised the fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all of the Israelites, a promised land where we shall find rest, we too shall find rest in that, that city four square. Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. <laughs> to that home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. It's somewhat trite, but it's, it's beautiful. It's true. It's, and we can grasp it. We have it as we believe in Christ that God is making a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. We shall receive new bodies. These are all promises of, in this word that you can hope in. We shall receive new bodies which no longer wrestle with that old man. That, not just speaking of the aging of our bodies, but that old flesh that still dwells within us now. Revelation 21. If you can turn with me there. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 7. Taste what is to come. Verses 3 through 7. Revelation 21. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Remember, he shall dwell with his people. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is the promise that he promised to Abraham. And this is what we also have. And God, verse 4, shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Hope in his word. Hope in his promises. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be 
my son. We are to be the children of God. We are right now, because of what Christ has done, the children of God. Taste that. Breathe in it. Hope in that. Let that stir your affections for Christ. The dwelling place of God shall be with his people. He shall wipe away all of our tears. No death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. He is making all things new. And there, he goes on to say that the new Jerusalem shall shine with the glory of God. No temple. For God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Neither shall it have any need of the sun or the moon. For the glory of God shall be its light and the Lamb its lamp. This is, we shall walk by his light by day and day by day. And in the last chapter of the scriptures, Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life. Without price. These are what we can hope in. These are the promises of God. If you are thirsty, um, there is no price. Brothers and sisters, I want you, every one of you, to be like watchmen for the morning. As you live your life now, be like watchmen on the towers. Isaiah 62 speaks of how God has set watchmen in Jerusalem who never hold their peace day or night. They constantly make mention of the Lord. Why? Because they are crying out to him, giving him no rest until that time when he shall make Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. Let us be like watchmen for the new Jerusalem. At the end of that chapter, 62 in Isaiah Verses 11 and 12, God makes another promise. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Back to our psalm tonight, 130. Put your hope in his word. I've just told you so many things that we can hope in and that we can pray for. God knows everything and his promises shall come, but it is his peculiar pleasure to have you pray for them as well. And it'll benefit you too as you remind yourselves of what is to come, of God's goodness. Put your hope in his word, gain your confidence there, and then do not be moved. Do not be shaken. Wait for the Lord. This is a repeated word in this psalm. Wait. Wait for the Lord, no matter how long that takes. Make your soul to wait for the Lord with anticipation. Um. More than the watchman desires the morning, let your soul yearn for the Lord's coming. I don't know if any of you have worked midnight shifts before. 
I'm sure some of you have. I've, I've done a few. They really suck the life right out of you. Just darkness and... But when the morning comes, the sun just peeking over the horizon, such a great relief. It's... And that's just for a job, but the, for the watchmen, they have to be on high alert. Nighttime to them is not just a job that they're doing, but they're on alert because nighttime is also when the enemy is most likely to attack, most likely when they're going to be taken by surprise. They long for the morning, not just for the sake of the light and the end of their shift, but because it also brings a feeling of safety, of security. Yearn for the Lord's deliverance in that way. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. What I find so wonderful about these two verses and, and really the rest of the psalm is that the psalmist is confident that his prayer is answered. All he has to do is trust and hope in God's word because God is true to his word. And in verses 7 and 8, the last two verses of the psalm, this confidence, this assurance that the psalmist has overflows within him such that he calls upon Israel to hope in the Lord. It is, prob it is probable that when the psalm was written, Israel was in a time of unrepentant sin. In most of its history, Israel was in a time of unrepentant sin. But this psalm could encourage them wherever they are, whether it was a time of backsliding, a time of exile, a time of defeat from enemies because of their unfaithfulness. For the nation and for the individuals of that nation, whether it's just the remnant or the people as a whole, no matter when, this psalm can encourage them by turning them to remember that with the Lord is mercy. And with the Lord is plenteous, plentiful redemption. They experienced it in Exodus when God redeemed his people from Egypt. They experienced it again when he brought them out of Babylon to, to, create the, to restore the second temple after the likeness of the first. But all of these were just foreshadowing the plentiful redemption that we have in Christ. Let me conclude with this. Fellow Christians, fellow heirs, fellow image bearers, fellow saints, fellow servants of the gospel. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you are in Christ, believe that. The kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Psalm 130 verses 7 and 8. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, even though you are a barbarian, as we said this morning, or if you're a Gentile, if you're a Jew, you are grafted in Christ into the true vine, Jesus Christ. You are a part of the true Israel, which shares this promise and all of the promises in this scripture that find their yes and amen in Christ. All of the promises we have that the Lord God shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let us praise and thank our God for his glorious redemption. Oh God, thank you. A millennia shall pass and we shall not have praised you enough for what you have done for us. Your word says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lord, I pray for this congregation. I pray for Berean Baptist Church that they would just be filled with the peace, the love, the joy that we share in you, Lord. Let them hold fast throughout their lives and in every moment of suffering and every trial and every temptation. We know that trials shall come. We know that they persecuted Christ and so we shall share in some degree of persecution as, as well, Lord. Even still, despite all of the fallenness of this world and and even though cling, sin clings to us so tightly, Lord, and some days we can go and get so tired, Lord. You shall redeem us from all iniquities. You have promised your spirit to be with us. Jesus Christ promised that he will be with us till the end of the age. And at the end of that age, in his kingdom, in the fullness of his kingdom, we shall always be with the Lord our God. Lord, let that be an encouragement to this church. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.